0: Some of you may be wondering what, in fact, most of you are wondering what I am doing up here this morning. Dave and Steve uh, normally uh, carry the ball on Sunday mornings, and I started to get a glimpse of uh, why uh, Revelation 11 had been handed to me when I started to read a couple of the commentaries on this passage. I I picked up the first one, and it said, This is undoubtedly one of the most difficult passages in the whole book of Revelation. That got me scared. Then they picked up the second one, and it said, uh, "No solution has ever been given to this portion of prophecy." So, I figured they figured if somebody was going to look like a monkey teaching this passage, it might as well be me. But, uh, But it's a but Revelation 11 is a difficult portion of Scripture, and it's a difficult portion of the Book of Revelation. And to me, it is a reminder that when we're dealing with prophetic literature. Like the book of Revelation, we need to have a fair amount of uh, tolerance and uh, understanding. There are many divergent viewpoints on uh, the details of the book of Revelation, and we need to give God's people room to differ in their understanding and still be accepting and uh, loving of one another. Now, fortunately for us, the main point of what uh, John is trying to get across to us in the whole book and in various portions of the book is very clear, and if we If we just try to centralize on on the main point that John is trying to make, then I think that will help us in uh, thinking clearly about this passage. Last week, David discussed uh, chapter 10, in which we had the story of the angel standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and holding a little book in his hand. And John was instructed to come and to take that little book out of the hand of the angel and eat it and it was sweet to the taste and yet after it had been digested and sat in his stomach it turned bitter so it was a uh, uh, a revelation from god that was both sweet to the taste and yet had uh, had bitterness associated with it well we're not told in chapter ten what the contents of that little book were, and i believe that's the function of chapter eleven at least the first thirteen verses is to reveal to us the contents of the little book held by the strong angel now, all of chapter 11, including the last paragraph, uh, forms a, a play or an act, if you will, in three movements. The first uh, act is in verses 1 and 2, where the temple, where John is instructed to measure the temple. Then in verses 3 through 14, there is the ministry of the two witnesses. And then finally, in verses 15 through 19, the seventh angel sounds the seventh trumpet and the Lord returns. So we've got three movements to, to this chapter. I believe here, uh, you'll notice in verse 2 that there is a reference to a period of 42 months, and in verse 3 there's a reference to a period of 1260 days. Now, for myself, I believe that this is a literal time reference to the second half of the tribulation period. John is being given a vision which looks forward into the last half of the great tribulation period, and he is looking at God's people and their ministry in the last times. And there is debate about how literally those figures are to be taken. But for myself, I think that they uh, intend to represent an actual literal period of time. So it appears that everything is taking place in the future and what's the relevance for us. But we need to remember that when John wrote this book, he wrote it in the first century to Christians who needed to be encouraged and needed to be instructed. And he fully intended that the contents of this book be of relevance and of value and of help To people in his day. And people in his day, just as you and I, were people who were living in times of pressure. And John is writing a book which will give them confidence and instruction and courage in times of pressure. And we need the same in times of pressure in the 80s to to the instruction and the courage and the encouragement of God's word to be his people in times of pressure. So this uh, chapter is of great relevance for us. If God was able to sustain and work effectively in this last period in a time of great pressure, able to sustain his people at that kind of time, then certainly he can do the same for us today when the pressure is great but not quite as intense. So we need to look at it in that way. Now let's look at the first two verses together, the first movement in this three-act play. John says in verse 1, There was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And Someone said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. And leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations. And they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months." So the vision that John has here is of a temple area, a holy place and the holy of holies, and then an area outside that immediate area where there was an altar where sacrifices were offered, and then outside of that was an outer court, and then beyond that was the holy city, was a city surrounding this temple. Now John is told to measure this temple and the altar and the people who worship in this enclosure, but to leave out this outer court, because the outer court's been given to the Gentiles. <clears throat> And they, he says, will tread underfoot the holy city for a period of three and a half years. Now, the immediate question we need to address is whether this temple and this altar and this city are to be taken literally or to be taken symbolically. Does John intend for us to visualize an actual temple of mortar and stone or is this a symbol of something else? One of the ways to resolve a question like that is to see how John uses these terms, the temple and the holy city, in the rest of Revelation. And I will entrust that to you at your leisure to do a concordance study of those words. But if you will look carefully through the Book of Revelation, you will find that everywhere else that John uses the uh, symbol of a temple, he uses it figuratively, not as a literal physical temple, but as a reference to something in a symbolic way. And when he refers to the holy city, again he uses that in a symbolic way and I would suggest that here John intends for us or the giver of the vision intends for us to understand these in a figurative sense as well well if they're figurative what do they represent a temple of God we know from the Old Testament the significance of a temple is that it is the place where God dwells it's a dwelling place for God It's a place where he takes up residence well we find in the new testament that uh, the temple of god since the coming of christ is people that god's temple is people its people in whom he takes up residence he no longer dwells in buildings but he dwells in people he takes up residence in the lives of his people so john here i believe has given a vision which refers to god's people in the last time these are God's people in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period—they're referred to as the temple because they are those in whom God has taken up residence. Now, the same is true for you and I—that we today are the temple of God. We are the men and women in whom God has chosen to to set up residence, to uh, to take up habitation. He's uh, chosen to indwell us, to impart His very life to us, to take up residence in in the very heart of our being, to give us companionship. And power for living. So we today are the temple of God. I don't know if uh, you grew up with Sunday school material like I did, but every once in a while you would come across a. You turn a page and you'd come across a, uh, a little lesson, and up in the upper right hand corner would be this little wood church with a really cute steeple, and underneath would be the caption, This is God's church. And uh, what was being communicated was that the place where God lived was a building, that God lived in buildings. Even. Uh, even in, in uh, churches where the scriptures are well taught, sometimes this, uh, uh, this deception or this confusion uh, persists. I went to a church in Dallas where they just getting ready to move into a brand new sanctuary, and it's a very well-taught church, and yet a man got up the Sunday morning before we were to move into this new building and made a big point that we should not chew gum and we should not carry coffee into the uh, new sanctuary because it was the sanctuary of God. It was the house of God. And, of course, that subsequently needed to be cleared up. Now, I agree that they probably shouldn't spill coffee and stuff in the church because it's a nice building and you want to preserve it that way, but not because it's the place where God dwells. God doesn't live in buildings. God lives in people. So this is the first element, then, uh, that describes the character of God's people in the last times, as they are those, just as we are, who are indwelt by God. We have access to His life on a moment-by-moment basis now he's also told to measure the altar and this gives us the second characteristic of God's people at this time is that they were a sacrificing people now a sacrifice for New Testament priests such as we are is the sacrifice of our bodies Paul calls it a living sacrifice in Romans 12 and all it means to be a living sacrifice is that we are those who on a day-by-day basis make ourselves available to God we put ourselves at his disposal now the way I start my day, as I take a shower every morning, and just before I step out of the shower, I just kind of lean back under that hot, stinging spray, and I just say, "Lord, today I want to be Your man. Just want to place uh, my mind and my emotions and my will and my body at Your disposal, and I ask You, who live in me, to use me today, use me in whatever way You wish, and live in me and live out Your character and Your life in me." And that's all it means to be a sacrifice to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God so that's the second characteristic God's people are those who put themselves at God's disposal thirdly he says they are those who worship now to worship someone is to simply uh, ascribe to them the worth and the value that they deserve so the third characteristic of God's people is that they are those who recognize God's value God's importance and God's centrality in life they are those who worship him now also in verse two john refers to the holy city which is going to be trampled underfoot by the gentiles now the holy city elsewhere in revelation as i have mentioned is a picture again of god's people It's another way of describing god's people a city is just a community of people and john says the distinctive mark of this community of people is that it's a holy people to be holy simply means to be reserved or set aside for god's use so this is a fourth way of describing god's people they are those who are reserved who have set themselves apart to be used no longer for themselves and by themselves but to be used for god and to be used by god uh, a few weeks ago i went to a cbmc luncheon here in town and the guest speaker was a man by the name of tom hamilton he is a very uh, successful attorney in the uh, Southern California area, is a senior partner in a very prestigious law firm. Very involved in civic affairs, uh, helped uh, get the mayor of San Diego elected. Was the chairman of his uh, campaign committee. Was handpicked by Governor Reagan back in the late 60s to uh, head up uh, the anti-drug uh, task force in the state of California. And just in every respect, an entirely successful and and prominent. And uh, he was an achiever all the way. And yet he'd reached. Uh, reached a point in life that is often referred to as destination sickness he'd gotten to where he wanted to be and realized he didn't want to be there had everything he always wanted and didn't want anything he had and right at that point uh, someone invited him to go to an executive seminar sponsored by campus crusade so he and his wife flew off to dallas and bill bright and billy graham were there and a number of others and as soon as they got there they were segregated the husbands were separated off from the wives for the entire weekend so he didn't have any idea how his wife was responding to all this stuff and he just knew how he was doing and as they got toward the end of the weekend he realized that he really needed to turn his life over to the Lord well they got to the last evening and Bill Bright was making a final challenge and he was uh, he had the men seated, seated over here and the women seated over here and Bright was saying now the time has come for each of you to make a decision in your heart for the Lord to acknowledge Him as the Lord of your life and Tom knew that he had to do it Now is the time. And Bright went on to explain that when you make this decision to accept Christ as Lord, you are turning over to Him your time and your talent and your treasure. Your time, talent, and treasure are being given over to the Lord for His use. And Tom knew he had to do it, and the only thing that was stopping him from standing up with the rest was that he was trying to figure out how he was going to explain to his wife what he was doing with her half of the money. (laughs) But uh, he finally realized he needed to do it, and so he stood up, and to his great relief, his wife stood up too. And together, they yielded over to the Lord the right for him to use their time and talent and treasure, any way that he chose. Well, when they did that, they became members of the Holy City. They became members of the community of people who have reserved themselves and their possessions for God's special use. So these are the characteristics of God's people, then, in the last time and today as well. Indwelt uh, by God, making themselves available to God on a daily basis, acknowledging His centrality in life, and being those who have reserved their time and talent for His special use. Now, John is told to measure this temple. And the reason he's told to measure it is that the Gentiles or the nations, which in John's terminology is a way of referring to the non-Christian world, the non-Christians will tread, uh, will trample underfoot the holy city. He says that the Gentiles will trample underfoot the community of people who've set themselves apart for God's use. And that suggests that in this last period of time, in these last three and a half years, that uh, the enemy will have an unprecedented opportunity to oppress and to suppress the the church to, to suppress god's people in the last times those who are who are serving jesus that uh, the non-christian world will have an unparalleled opportunity to repress them and to persecute them and the reason that the temple is being measured is that god is measuring out his property in order to protect them see despite this great pressure and despite this persecution god has marked out his property and his possessions for protection. He is going to protect them during this time so that they can accomplish the work that he set for them to do. Now, John illustrates that with the story of the two witnesses. He illustrates this this protection of God under great pressure in verses 3 through 14. So let's look ahead at that section. <clears> There's <throat> first of all the record of the The ministry of these men in verses 3 through 6 says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone would desire to harm them in this manner, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And then in verse 7, this is the termination of their ministry. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Well, again, we need to ask the same question we did with the holy city and the the temple. Are these witnesses to be taken in a literal sense as two real live human beings in the last period of time? Or are they symbolic of uh, something? Well, for uh, for my satisfaction, I believe that John intends for us to see two real live human prophets here. These are two men that God has specially chosen to bear witness to the truth in the last three and a half years. And you'll notice that they are protected during the duration of their prophesying ministry. And yet at the same time, these men are patterns for the Christians of the last three and a half years. And as well, they are patterns for us. They provide us with an example to follow in our own ministries in this period of time. Now they're described in several ways. First of all, they are described as witnesses. Uh, both in verse three and down in verse seven, they are those who give testimony. Well, it's witnesses that give testimony. What's the significance of being a witness? Notice in verse three that he said that God says, "I will grant authority to my two witnesses." In other words, these witnesses will be those who will draw the attention of men to Jesus. That's the point of being a witness. They're my witnesses. They're those who bear witness of me, who draw the attention of men to me. Now, that's what we're called to do in this period of time, a time of great pressure. God has entrusted to us the great privilege of drawing the attention of men, both uh, Christians and non-Christians alike, to Jesus, to encourage Christians to find Him as their resource and source for living and to encourage non-Christians to tap into His life and to His resource. So uh, that's the point of being a witness, to draw attention to the Lord some of you may know uh, Lonnie Clem He's a broker here a real estate broker here in town and Lon has been teaching a, uh, a time management and motivation seminar it's about a 10-week seminar and for the first eight or nine weeks of the seminar uh, lon just goes over basic concepts of, of time management and how to set priorities and how to live life in light of these basic set of priorities and finally in the last week after he's taken them through this, what Lon does is he puts down his notes and his uh, books and he simply describes to them his own encounter with the Lord Jesus and says that the Lord is the one who has given me the resource to be the kind of self-controlled and disciplined individual I need to use my time effectively. And the Lord is the one who's given me the resource to set proper priorities and to try to make Him work in daily life and the Lord's the resource for all of this Um, beyond all these basic principles that just could be an encouragement to the flesh to try to improve life he says it takes God in life to turn things around to change things Well, what's he doing he's just being a witness See, he's pointing attention beyond himself and beyond mere human resource to the one who has the capacity and the power to activate these things to make us into the kind of people that we want to be so we're called to be witnesses in that same sense Now, also, you'll see in verse 3 and down again in verse 6, they are described as prophets. Now, in the New Testament sense, as well as the Old Testament, prophets were those who were agents of revelation. God would give to them new revelation of truth, and they, in turn, would communicate it to a waiting world. And this was the function of these prophets, to communicate God's revelation in the last times. Now, we are not agents of revelation in the same sense, but we do have revelation to get. We do have revelation to communicate. God has given it to us through His prophets and the Scriptures. And that's the great privilege we have, is not only to draw attention to the Lord, but to draw attention to His truth. As you look around us, we just see many people whose uh, lives are just in shambles, who've made a mess out of things, and they need desperate help. And often what they need is an understanding of the way in which life is to be lived. They need some understanding of truth. And we have that to offer. It's a great crying need in our time for truth about marriage, for example. Uh, husbands, uh, both Christians and non-Christians alike, need to be reminded of the uh, teaching of Scripture that men are to give themselves for their wives, not to be tyrants and, uh, and despots in their home, but to be concerned in giving for their wives, concerned for them not simply for their own interests and wives need to be encouraged to submit to their husbands and give their husbands the freedom to make final decisions when there is conflict and both uh, men and women need to be instructed uh, about God's truth that marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment that nothing but death can break and this needs to be communicated because it's truth that's being ignored by Christians and non Christians alike and to their peril it destroys people when this truth is ignored And we're given the responsibility and the great privilege of calling people back to these basic truths to help them Make some sense out of life and to begin to put the pieces of their life back together Now they're also described not only as witnesses and prophets, but in verse 4 They are described as the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth What John has in mind here is a vision in zechariah chapter four which you can read at your leisure and what zechariah saw there is really kind of a vivid picture what zechariah saw was a lampstand that was placed in between two olive trees and these olive trees would grow up and the olive oil from the olives on this tree would flow down into these receptacles on either side of this lampstand and the oil would flow into the lampstand to provide fuel for the lamps to provide the fuel to provide light and that's the passage where the lord says it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord and so those olive trees pouring their oil into the lampstand was a picture of a continual supply of the holy spirit to make that lampstand a a shining light in a dark place so it's a picture that these two prophets are those who draw continually upon the fuel of the Spirit to shine as lights in a dark place. Uh, John, or Paul uses the same kind of imagery in Philippians 2. I don't know if you've ever been struck by this, but in verse 15 in chapter 2, he, he tells us that, that we can be like stars in the night sky, be, the, be a source of light, be beacons in a dark world. And the question you ask is, how can we be that? We want to have that kind of impact on the world around us. What is it that will enable us to be that way? Is it uh, going to the latest uh, Christian seminar, or is it memorizing reams of Scripture, or is it mastering uh, an approach to evangelism? Well, if you back up one verse, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. See if you learn to handle life without complaining without complaining about people about being bitter and resentful toward others and if you learn uh, not to dispute if you learn to overcome the anger that gets you into arguments and fights with your wife and your children and the people you work with and your neighbors then paul says you will shine as lights in a dark place that's what the world is looking for some kind of contentment and some kind of peace in human relationships And that's the way we shine as lights in a dark place. And see, it takes the continual flow of the Holy Spirit in life to enable us to do that. That's the only way we can handle life without grumbling and complaining and without fighting, is by drawing continually upon the supply of the Spirit. In the first service, uh, Dave Pavlik and his family were here. His uh, ten-year-old daughter, Kristen, was evidently listening to me a little more closely than I thought, and uh, she scribbled a beautiful piece of artwork here. You really can't see it, but she drew two olive trees, and uh, she's got the olives dripping their oil into the receptacles and fueling this little lamp in the middle, which is shining and glowing brightly. And uh, she's got the title of the whole little piece of artwork is The Holy Spirit Working in Us. And she really captured the point of what John is trying to make. as his Holy Spirit, which enables us to shine in a dark place. Now they're also described in verse six as those who have power to shut the sky, and as those who have the so that it won't rain, and also as those who have power uh, over the earth to bring plagues and to turn the water into blood, and so on. Now most of you will recognize the uh, Old Testament figures that uh, John is thinking of here or that the one who is giving the revelation is thinking of uh, the, uh, the prophet who was able to shut the sky for three and a half years was Elijah and the prophet who was able to bring plagues upon the whole earth and turn the water into blood was Moses so the point is that these two prophets will have the same power and the same resource that Moses and Elijah had in the last days they too will be able to uh, exert uh, power over natural forces and to bring great wonders uh, in the natural realm and it's this power released through their ministry that confirms their message see god always confirms his message by releasing his power Now for us, the way in which God confirms our message to others is by releasing His power in us, just as we've been talking about. If God's power is at work in us to give us uh, freedom from resentment and a complaining spirit when others around us are bitterly complaining, and giving us the power to be peaceful and to be harmonious in our relationships with others, see, then it confirms the message that we are proclaiming, that Jesus is the answer. But if we are in, we are telling people that Jesus is the answer, and yet we are demonstrating none of that solution in our own lives, then there's no impact to the message. It's not being confirmed by God's power. So these are prophets whose ministry was confirmed by God's power. And that's how our ministry, how our message is confirmed likewise, is by the release of God's power in our lives. Now, I also would draw your attention to the fact that these prophets are described as those who are protected until their ministry is finished. It's a very vivid picture in verse 5. Uh, John is given a revelation of these two prophets standing evidently in the streets of Jerusalem and possibly elsewhere. And uh, and it's only, he says in verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, when they've completed it, when they've accomplished it, when they've carried it out, that the beast from the abyss, that is the Antichrist, can kill them, can do away with them. They're protected until our ministry is finished. Uh, I think Augustine was the one who first said that man is immortal until his work is done. Man is immortal until his work is done. And that's true. Uh, We must not presume upon God uh, believing this. Uh, I think it was Dr. McGee who told a story about listening to a young preacher who uh, was uh, expounding on this thing that we are immortal until our work is done. And he was getting pretty excited about this, and he was uh, trying to hammer it home, and he says, my friends, if it wasn't my time, I could go out in the middle of the Santa Monica freeway, and I could stand there, and I wouldn't die if it wasn't my time. And Vernon McGee came up to him afterwards in his own sweet way, and he says, uh, my friend, if uh, you were to go and stand in the middle of the Santa Monica freeway, that'd be your time. <laughs> so we're not to presume upon God in this regard, but at the same time, we are protected until our ministry is finished. Um, Mimi Barnes was telling me this week about some of the experiences that the men in her family have had with uh, airplane flights. Larry uh, once was in a plane uh, that iced up over the Rockies in the middle of the night. engines <clears throat> engine just froze up. looked like it was curtains. Another time, Larry was riding in a plane with a pilot who had a cerebral hemorrhage at the controls. Again, it looked like curtains. John and Mimi had been trapped in a snowstorm in the middle of the night again. And yet each time, God somehow or other has managed to spare them. Well, why? Why has He spared Larry and John and Mimi? Well, it's because the impact that they are to have on people around them isn't through yet. God's not finished with them yet. Their ministry's not over. And God's protecting them and preserving them until... Uh, their ministry is complete. So we can we can labor, see we can minister with boldness, with confidence. We can uh, take risks, knowing with our reputation, with our finances, knowing that God will protect us and preserve us as we minister for Him. Now, when they finish their testimony, we see their their death recorded in verses seven through ten. The beast that comes out of the abyss, that is the Antichrist, is able to overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically or spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Here evidently the reference is to the city of Jerusalem, which at this period of time is uh, l- more like Sodom and Egypt in other words it's a place where wickedness is rampant and it's a place where people are in bondage just as Sodom and Egypt signify and it's the place where the Lord was crucified so Jerusalem in this period of time is not pictured as a as a holy city as a righteous city but a city which is like Sodom and Egypt and it's there on the streets of the city of Jerusalem that these prophets lie unburied it says for 3 days In verse 9, those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. To uh, prevent a dead body from being buried was, in the Eastern world, the ultimate uh, form of uh, humiliation and shame, refusing burial to a dead body. And so they do this. They just lay in the streets for three and a half days. And in verse 10, those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth is a phrase that John uses repeatedly to refer to those who have become comfortable with an earthly lifestyle, who have settled down into an earthly viewpoint, and have no room and no time in their lives for God. And these prophets, see, were those who continually reminded them that God existed and that God needed to be a central figure in their lives. And it tormented them, see. This bugged them, it annoyed them, and the harder they tried to get rid of these guys, the less success they had. And then finally, after their ministry is finished, the Antichrist is able to kill them, to silence them, and this is a source of great joy for for all those who have resisted their message, because finally these troublemakers are out of the way. But not quite. Says in verse eleven, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. And understandably, great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. You know, I sort of uh, visualize this in our in, in contemporary terminology as uh, we're watching uh, CBS and uh, Dan Rather is. Uh, uh, showing some film highlights of these two prophets in their three and a half year ministry, and he's got some film footage of the fire proceeding out of their mouth and them standing on street corners and preaching the gospel and proclaiming God's truth. And uh, then the camera pans to a live close-up of the two bodies, see, laying there in the streets of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, these bodies which have been laying there dead for three and a half days begin to move. Some life begins to come into them, and all of a sudden, these two. Dead bodies just stand to their feet, alive and well again. And you can imagine the kind of fear that uh, and terror that. Never seen Dan rather dumbstruck on 60 Minutes, but that would probably come as close as any to him being speechless. And you can just see the fear that would come upon the people who would who would be looking on at these two men who actually rise from the dead after laying in the streets for three and a half days. And great fear it says fell upon them. And then it says in verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, "Come up here." And they went up into heaven in the cloud, just as the Lord did, and their enemies beheld them. <clears throat> and in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So, evidently, when God calls these two prophets home to be with him after their ministry has been completed, they're resurrected to be with the Lord. And that same Hour at the same time, there's a great earthquake which shakes the city. And if we hold to our continual literal understanding here, which seems to me to recommend itself, then it's the city of Jerusalem which is wrecked by this earthquake, a tenth of the city just in laying in rubble and ruin, and 7,000 of the residents of the city are killed. And the rest who aren't killed begin to put two and two together. See, they've got the message of the prophets who said that God needs to be reckoned with and you've got an earthquake which decimates a tenth of the city and they get the picture and they give glory to god and at that point they become believers in the lord of the of the whole earth and it occurred to me that that's often the way god works in our ministries as well as we communicate the truth both to people in our families in our neighborhoods in our church in the places where we work that the message we communicate often seems to fall on deaf ears just doesn't seem to register doesn't seem to make any impact but then at some point along the way the Lord will bring a set of circumstances into their lives which will just shake them right to the roots and everything they've held on to and counted upon suddenly begins to rattle and is in danger of just falling apart. And it's at that point that the truth that God is sufficient and able begins to come back to them, see? And so God will use these circumstances often to in conjunction with the with the truth that we share to bring people to a realization of himself and to bring them to new life in Christ. Now it occurred to me that the ministry of these prophets is uh, very parallel to what we've seen happening in China just recently. You know that in 1949 with the great revolution that all of the missionaries were booted out of China and the church was uh, ruthlessly suppressed and oppressed and persecuted and uh, martyrs by the score by the thousands and it seemed that uh, the beast from the abyss that uh, satan had managed to completely squelch the life and the ministry of the church well now that things have opened up just in the last 3 or 4 years and westerners have been able to go into china and to observe what's been going on what we found out is that there are now in china there are 50,000 house churches see god's work has continued to go on and it's almost as if that church has been brought back from the dead because God has been faithful to His word in the ministry of those who, who sowed the truth in China, and then were, were thrown out. Say they're gone. Say, but the message remained, the ministry remained, the gospel took root, and it flourished. And now there are, there are Christians in fifty thousand different places in the country of China who are who are worshiping the same Lord that we that we serve. Now in verse fourteen, he says that the second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is coming quickly. The second woe here is a reference to the 200 million horsemen in chapter 9 and to the ministry of the two prophets. That's a woe to the people who dwell on the earth. And the third woe is coming quickly. It says immediately following the departure of these two witnesses in this great earthquake, the third woe is coming. And the third woe evidently is the seventh trumpet or the seventh angel sounding his trumpet in verse 15. And announcing the second coming. So the third woe is the second coming of the Lord. And it's a woe to those who dwell on the earth because the truth will finally break in on them in a way that they cannot resist, cannot deny, will overpower them. Seventh angel sounded in verse 15. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. Now, the Lord is pictured as doing three things here in this paragraph, and the first one is on his return he will begin to rule. He will be the king uh, outwardly and visibly over the entire earth. Seems to us now that uh you know his rule is veiled at this point. It seems that evil has the upper hand and evil men and evil forces are ruling this world, and God is allowing them to have a certain amount of play and certain free reign at this point in history. But the time is coming, he says, when he will return and he will reign. He will be king over all the earth. He will set up his kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever. And it was this verse, by the way, that inspired uh, some of the lyrics in Handel's uh, hallelujah chorus. That uh, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. See? And that's the future, the destiny that uh, history holds. It's not just winding around in circles or winding down, running out of steam, but it has a point, it has a conclusion to it when the Lord will return and establish His reign. Now, in verses 18, He reveals his, uh, the other two things that He will do when He returns. It says the nations were enraged that is at the Lord who was returning and thy wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged and the time to give their reward to thy bondservants the prophets and to the Saints and to those who fear thy name the small and the great and to destroy those who destroy the earth so a second thing is revealed in the last phrase there in verse 18 and also in the first part is that the Lord is coming back to judge to establish justice I don't know if you've had this experience, but in reading the newspapers and in just in personal relationships, you realize often the great hurt and damage that people do to one another, and the, the cruelties and the, uh, the harshness of the way they relate to each other. And they just leave a, a trail of wreckage in their wake. And something in us cries out for that to be set right. See, those who destroy others, who destroy people, justice needs to be brought to bear. And the point that that this revelation makes here is that that's going to happen, see? It may not happen completely now. Sometimes God does that, set things right now. But one day, everything will be set right. And that longing in our hearts to see justice established and preserved will happen. And the third thing that the Lord will do when He returns is He will reward those who have served Him. Not only the prophets in verse 18, but also the saints. See, the saints, it's just you and I, just the ordinary garden variety type Christians, just day in and day out, serving the Lord in our jobs and our homes. We're the saints, and we too are in line for honor and for reward when He returns. Not only the great, He says later in the verse, but also the small. See, we may feel that we are fairly small and insignificant in God's program, and yet when the Lord returns, the reward is for both the small and the great and the basis on which this reward is given is simply it's given to those who fear his name that's the basis on which the reward is gained and the basis on which the reward is given so our responsibility is simply to fear his name whether we're prophets or saints or small or great our responsibility is to fear his name to recognize him on a day-by-day basis for who he is and to quietly trust him to recognize him and acknowledge him as the source of our life and the source of our power, the source of our character, and to live as if He is the one who supplies uh, everything that we need for daily life. And when the Lord comes back, He'll reward that faithfulness, that trust, that dependence upon Him. Uh, Ted engstrom was uh, uh, executive director of World Vision, was in China recently. He came back with an interesting uh, observation about the Chinese language. There's a word in the Chinese language uh, for crisis. And you know that in uh, Chinese, uh, it's very much a pictograph kind of language. And the word for crisis is formed from two characters. The top character means danger, and the bottom character means opportunity. And that's the way Chinese view a crisis. It's a time of danger, and yet it's also a time of great opportunity. And that's true for us. These times are times of danger, times of uh, pressure, and times of fear and uncertainty. And yet there are also great times of uh, opportunity for us, opportunity to, uh, to be different people, to be lights in a dark world, and to share the truth that God has made available to us that can change and can liberate others. And that's the glorious prospect that's held out before us. And one day, see, the Lord will return and He will vindicate. Vindicate our ministry, vindicate us, reward us, uh, acknowledge our faithful service to Him. And it's a great and glorious prospect that He will return and set up His reign. And all we need to do now is just simply quietly and faithfully depend on Him. Trust Him. Count upon Him to make our lives something different and unique among the people around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the encouragement that there is to us in this chapter that... uh, you have uh, chosen to indwell us to give us access to all of your life and strength and resource a continual supply of your spirit we pray that you would enable us to uh, imitate these uh, two <coughs> witnesses these two prophets to draw the attention of men to you and to uh, to share without hesitation your truth to encourage men and challenge men to respond to it to obey it as whether Christian or non-christian and we pray Lord that you will uh, give us this anticipation that you will protect us and preserve us as we carry out our ministry, that you'll uh, not let anything stop us before, uh, before our work for you and our use for you is complete. Thank you for that great uh, privilege. We pray that you will give us the freedom and the grace now to depend upon you quietly and faithfully day by day. Amen.